please enjoy the show. I hear it's a breath of fresh air, but with 2.5 micron particulate matter. Paul, I, I mean, you can edit that out, right? That doesn't have to be. <laughs> they'll, they'll get the joke in twenty minutes or thirty minutes when when that comes up. Just like I said before, put that in your back pocket and just savor it until until the moment comes. You'll know it, and then you'll just nod knowingly, with a smile on your face, and a song in your heart. It'll fester. Entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. That's that's right, Stuart. And what a show it was today. <laughs> we we just keep doing this. That's apparently. right, <laughs> Paul. What do we do exactly? Why don't you tell us? I we we're to this already. I Are mean, we I gonna? Like I, I think like we should introduce ourselves. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ignore Matt. Uh, okay. Maybe Paul and I can turn the tables on you. <laughs> <laughs> As so, per usual. Uh, this is Matt Watto. This is the Curbsiders. Stuart Brigham is the one that is uh, derailing the show as usual, uh, as he as he tends to do. And uh, this is another recap show. We are in New Orleans at Chest, hashtag Chest 2019. That's right. And uh, we have a lot of great pearls today. We had three great guests. We'll tell you about them in a second. But Paul, remind people, what is it that we do on this show? And maybe if you wanted to tell them the meaning of life, uh, <laughs> why are we here? Sure. Uh, that, that would also be appreciated. Sure. No problem. So we are, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And, and again, we have another lineup of just spectacular experts. Um, you'll, you'll be hearing from yet again from Chest at 2019, as the great Dr. Watto said. Meaning of life, is it 42? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess so. I was actually looking that up just now. So with us, with us again, uh, who has been fantastic at this entire conference, helping us make sure that we keep on track with everything, is the great Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Hi. Sarah, can you tell us uh, about our guests? Uh, so we were joined today by a group of phenomenal pulmonologists, uh, including Dr. Aaron Nureski, Dr. Chirema Chima Melton, Dr. Nina Malanen, and and our good friend, chief resident at Walter Reed, Kim Fabian. That's right. And we had a very wide-ranging discussion yet again. We talked about some end-of-life stuff. We talked about vitamin C. That was quite entertaining. <laughs> that was something else. <laughs> we, talked, we actually talked a little bit about how religion uh, ties into patients who are critically mm -hmm. ill. We talked about DOACs and uh, reversal agents lung cancer and small particles, some, some procalcitonin. Everyone always loves to talk about procal and, uh, some, some teaching pearls, augmented reality. And, and what happens if you drop the, a computer in the middle of a small remote village? It was, Breaks. it was yet again, another wonderful, uh, conversation that we had here at chest. And I should once again, thank the great Dr. Bill Kelly, who uh, was kind enough to invite us here. Him and his wonderful team have been so accommodating, and we'd like to thank them uh, for having us at Chest. We are humbled and honored. Yes, thank you, Dr. Kelly. 
Aaron, yesterday we we were talking about this in pre-recording, but we didn't have time to get to it. So I want to I want to talk about at the end of life stuff that we learned at this conference. Can you tell tell the audience what what you're excited about there and some tips that they can use in their practice? Oh, I would I would love to. I think the best part of the session, which was called Dealing with Requests for Feudal Care, was provided by Uluba Canola Dwyer. Uh, she's a she's a lawyer, and she was able to talk with us about some of the case history regarding end of life care issues in the ICU. Um, and so, one of the things that she taught us that I had never heard before but which makes total sense, is that no legal method has ever been successful in having a physician or institution held liable for not providing feudal care, even when that care resulted in the death of a patient. So um, the only legal standard we're actually held to is the malpractice test, which is the same test we're held to for all of the care that we give, which is that physician treatment decisions are measured against the standard of care, and that that requires that substandard care had to have caused injury to the patient. So as long as you're providing a standard of care, you don't need to offer feudal therapy because the legal system says that we have to. And I think that that, that's a broad misconception um, among our colleagues. Now, we we had kind of discussed this a little bit there, but there could have been some selection bias behind that too. Um, That doesn't mean you can just, you know, run around and just say everything's feudal. No. And one of the things that was discussed in the meeting was that we should really not be using that term very frequently. Right. Instead of saying feudal, if we think that care is unfortunately not going to result in a good outcome, we should say potentially inappropriate and medically ineffective. Right. Which is a nice keyword that I'm going to just tattoo on the inside of my wrist so that I don't forget it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. On my tombstone. <laughs> I, I love that That would phrasing. be very applicable, Paul. We have to remember that language is an intervention in itself. And the way that we frame things for families makes all the difference. Anyway. Um, during the session, one of the case studies that was talked about was, you know, a very moribund patient with multiple strokes. And um, the, the question that was raised to the audience was, you know, what do you say to this family when they ask you for a trach and peg for this patient? And one of the people in the audience just raised his hand and said, what, who told them about a trach and peg as an option? <laughs> and, and, and it's a good point. The, you know, the language matters and the way that we roll things out really matters. And it helps save people a lot of suffering. Yeah. I think it just, I think a lot of it depends on the modeling that people are exposed to. And since it's a historically something we haven't done a good job at, it's, we now have to start like catching up and like do a better job of that. Yeah. I think one of the conversations we had, and I think which Stuart referred to about selection bias is I think just, I, we've all probably provided not fetal care, medically ineffective care um, at some point. And I think, I just, I just wonder if those protections are because those patients were just the sick of the sick. And I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think if if that was applied to every patient that for whom fetal care was applied, I'm not sure. I wonder if the numbers would be the same or not. I'm not sure what I'm saying makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think, though, that it, it is worthwhile for us to think about it from the front instead of the back. Instead of going to a patient and saying, can we please not provide fetal care? Yeah. We should be providing the standard of care and justifying what the standard of care is and talking with people in a compassionate manner that that is honest about what a, the medical care we can offer can provide for them. Um, so it's a little bit like asking forgiveness and not permission, but but it's in a compassionate and thoughtful way. Yeah. One, one of our recent guests, Dr. Josh Wee, uh, talked about, uh, well, I guess this hasn't been released yet, but he talked about making wish statements like, I wish I had something better to offer, but unfortunately, when I've tried this in the past, it hasn't worked. Right. Um, so I thought that was really good. It's it's almost a cop out when you give uh, 
unrealistic expectations, or at least you, you, you leave the semblance of unrealistic expectations. So someone brings up that trach and peg, and you're like, you know, I, I don't really want to fight this fight, or, or that's, not, that's a negative connotation behind it, but, you know, I, I, this is not something I'm, I'm going to be able to convince them of. That's what you've said in your, in, your, in your mind, and so you go ahead and acquiesce to that, but then you're giving them an unrealistic set of goals and expectations that you're not, you're, you're not you know, pulling that veil back on. Which reminds us all that we have to elicit goals right at the start. What are your goals for care is, is the first thing we need to talk about with patients and families when they enter an ICU setting, because then we can frame our future discussions in terms of what will meet their goals. We can say, I know your goal is to have your mom at home. And unfortunately, the interventions that you're discussing with me are not going to meet that goal. Chidinma or Nina, anything to add to this about the end of life stuff that you wanted to say? Absolutely. As someone who sees patients both from an inpatient perspective as well as outpatient with my chronic pulmonary um, disease patients, having that conversation from the get-go is really crucial. You know, a lot of um, residents and fellows tell me, oh, yeah, I'm meeting the patient for the first time. It's not the right time. But you know what? You plant that seed when you see them in the ER or when you see them at the floor and you open the door and start asking these questions. Because the next time they come in to see me or their oncologist or their primary care physician, you're more open to talking about it. Because often these discussions are a journey. They're not a destination in themselves. We also have systems issues that we all need to address about that. Out-of-hospital DNRs often don't translate into the inpatient center, so we all need to be advocates in our institutions for smoothing the systems that make that possible. One point I wanted to add with regard to discussion, they actually had a very interesting session this morning with regard to religion and end-of-life care. Uh, people usually try to shy away while talking to the families and bringing the religion into the discussion. And it has shown actually that trying, even using your own experience and trying to relate to the other family, even if you're not really familiar, whether it's one of the monotheist religions or any other religion, that it helps put everybody at ease and more and accept more really a let go and they discuss specifically the example of brain death uh, and brain death of pregnant um, uh, patients that actually end up having to lead uh, or continue the care until the baby is delivered and that's a really difficult situation so I think uh, we tend to forget about including religion in the uh, discussion at the end of life care. I'm sorry and what does the introduction a religion look like? Like, did they give you sort of examples or how do you actually introduce that as, as sort of an initial discussion? So the discussion, the way they explained it is always use yours, even if they are, because you have no idea what the patient's family and what their beliefs are. So try to relate to, to them based on your own beliefs without imposing your beliefs onto them, which is very difficult to do, but... Right. What if, and I'm being funny, what if you don't have one necessarily? Like, then how do you sort of proceed from there? It's... And, then you learn more about the patients and you ask sure. them and you ask them, do you, do you have any belief system? And we tend to see this also in the chronic illnesses as far as how aggressive you end up going, whether it's the IPF or whether it's the end of care, end of life care in oncology situations. And I think even if you do not know the patients or the families, if you learn more about their religion, there might be a better pathway to try to relate to them, to get them to understand that it is a um, really, I don't want to use the word futile, <laughs> but it is a really something that should be made, that the patient needs to be made more comfortable rather than um, intervene. Intentionally inappropriate and medically ineffective. That's it. <laughs> I will tattoo it too. <laughs> and just to jump off that point, you know, I think we've stirred away 
you know, appropriately from the paternalistic way of practicing medicine. But at the same time, we are physicians, we're clinical practitioners, we know more than the patients do. And often they're seeking guidance from us. So we shouldn't be afraid to take a stance. You know, often patients ask me, what would you do if this was your mother? What would you do if it was your dad? And I tell them honestly. And in some cases, they don't ask me, but I volunteer that. I tell them from my knowledge, from the patients I've seen, this is not going to work out well. You know, it's, there's a very high likelihood that your father's going to pass away from this condition, you know, and we can make his time here more painful. There are interventions we can do that may not work out the way we expect them to and may prolong his suffering. So there are certain key words you can use in having these conversations that tell a patient what's going to happen, but in a very sort of soft, kind way, empathetic way um, that doesn't minimize the suffering that their loved one is going through. Um, So don't be afraid to take that stance and offer your expert opinion because that's what it is of how a patient's going to fare. Having said that, don't don't run down to the ER the first time you see a patient. (laughs) and have absolutely no thoughts about religion, just walk up to them and say, you know, what are your thoughts on dying? Yeah, yeah. That's probably not the best way to start a rapport. You you should probably say, hi, I'm Stuart Ken Pregum. Now, what are your thoughts on dying? We, I want to move on because you you all have a bunch of other great stuff to tell people about. Um, So Dr. Noreski, what would be the next next point you wanted to make? Well, I attended a really interesting session, um, which was re- regarding bleeding in the ICU. Okay. Um, and the use of thromboelastography to minimize transfusion while providing an equivalent outcome and standard of care. Um, I really think this is something that all of us can advocate at our institutions because most of our institutions do have TEG as an option. Um, mostly it's used in the operating room setting. But if we can kind of grab that for ourselves and take it into the ICU, we can uh, provide fewer transfusions and equal outcomes. So Teg, can you just give the audience like a quick, you know, what is, what is it uh, and, and how practically how would it be used? Because it's not something that I've ever, ever used before. And maybe, you know, maybe if you're a hospitalist, you're seeing someone come out of the ICU trying to read about what was done. It's just good to know about these things that are being done in, in other levels of care. Yeah, so TEG is a point-of-care test. It tests the efficiency of blood coagulation, and it's primarily used by surgeons and anesthesiologists. Um, they take a small sample of blood, and they rotate it gently through through a spinner six times a minute. And what they do is they measure how fast the clot forms, the speed and strength of the clot formation. It's typically measured by a computer, and you get all of this in a printout at the end of the test. Yeah, and how would that potentially... Um how would that potentially change what you're doing based on the, the reading you get? Well, unlike a lot of other tests of, of um, coagulopathy, this is a test of, of whole blood, not just the, its ability to coagulate, but the quality of the coagulation. And so it will really help guide your management going forward because you're getting quality, quantity, and time all out of the TEG. Okay. So someone, if, if you know someone had been bleeding and then the tag numbers look favorable, you might say this, they probably stopped bleeding. We don't have to go so crazy with the transfusions. Right. And think about your liver, liver patients mm-hmm. who are so um, both prone to clotting and also pr- prone to bleeding. Tag can really help you differentiate whether you have a coagulopathy with that patient that you need to address. As far as the DOEX go, I heard you tell us a little bit about the reversal agents that were, that were discussed 
Yeah. So there's there's a couple of new agents that have recently come to market. We've we've all got some experience with idrisizumab, uh, which is used to rever- to reverse dabigatran. Uh, but there are two. There's a new agent coming to market, which is called adnexin alpha, and it is reversal for rivaroxaban and apixaban, the 10A inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was some talk today about how although this is a very costly agent, um, that the risk of thrib- thrombotic events on it is about equivalent. It's it's in the 18 percent range. Um, and that we can be dosing it appropriately for these agents based on based on the time that the agent was administered and which agent it was. Um, Did they mention how expensive that medication was? I, I'm sure exorbitantly. Yeah. yeah. Have any of our guests uh, had any experience with the reversal agents for either the direct thrombin or the 10A inhibitors? Anybody? It has been used absolutely in the ICU whenever uh, we have patients. And again, this brings me up to the previous um, discussion. If you have an end-of-life situation with liver cirrhosis, it's actually completely irreversible. Our patient is not a transplant candidate. And we end up using all these agents at the end. Um, the expenses are pretty significant. I mean, we're talking for each vial can be... A Hundred thousands of dollars. Yeah, so if that. you need, it's per weight. So if you need five, six, eight vials, you can do the math. We can be close to eight hundred thousand, nine hundred thousand dollars. And if it's for a patient, it's actually not going to be doing any better. It's just a matter of making the numbers look good yeah. and reversing. We need to take that into account, and we tend yeah. to forget that part because we just focus on reversing the coagulation. And it's important to remember that the half-life of the agents that we're talking about is relatively short. Right. By the time your patient with bleeding has come to the emergency room and has gotten up into your ICU and is still bleeding, do your math first and make sure right. that this is something that might be beneficial before you you know, yeah. uh, spend your king's ransom. As, as a hospitalist, uh, unless I, I haven't fortunately had the patient who just started pouring out blood on the floor where I felt the need to use one of these agents. And, and most of the time, um, it just, it just hasn't even become a thought because the, the, the agents are short acting and usually the patient stops bleeding or you transfuse them and they stop bleeding, you know, and you kind of just support them through it, uh, which, uh, that's, that's kind of just in practicality, but that's probably why I haven't seen it. Cause in the ICU, it's a, it's a much different, much different population you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's more useful is to remember that we have to use good transfusion ratios when we're massively transfusing. Um, you know, the trauma patients get the one to one to one ratio, but in the ICU, we tend to drift more towards three to one to one. But when I have experience with this in the real world, I often find that that even that ratio is not something that we're keeping up with. So maybe one of the things we can focus on is, is trying to keep to a more reasonable ratio. So Chidinma, our our new friend, we're gonna be hanging out. <laughs> we're hanging on a lot of chess. You keep making this run. It's great. And uh, we're gonna. We're. I'm, I keep threatening to hang out with you when I'm um in L.A. in it's the not spring. A threat. It's it, happening. Yeah. Okay. The promise. <laughs> Good stuff. Right. So you you went to some the critical care update today, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of interesting Ooh. stuff talked about there. Tell yeah. us. Tell us what do we need to know? Yeah. So let's uh, continue the family visits sort of palliative care. Um, the Discussion and um, this, there was a study that they discussed that was out of Brazil and uh, published in the JAMA this year. And basically, what it was was a, a liberal ICU visit in. Uh, 
strategy versus a, a restrictive one in patients. So on average, um, it was like one and a half hours versus up to 12 hours that the patient's families could spend with their patients. And what they were looking at, the endpoint was delirium, um, whether or not it helped improve the patient's delirium. Um, they found no difference in delirium when they measured the CAM-ICU, which is a, a validated scale uh, for measuring um, delirium in the ICU. However, what they discovered was that um, uh, secondary endpoints, which was looking at how the families felt, the families significantly had or reported back less anxiety, um, less depression, and uh, more satisfaction with the liberal visiting schedule. You know, I think this is actually worth a worthwhile intervention because, yes, it's not reducing delirium, but there's a lot of other positive benefits to do in this. I see myself as an intensivist, not just a physician for the patient. My responsibilities also lie with your family members right. and making sure that you're okay with this as well, what's happening with your loved one. Um, so if I can do an intervention that causes them less anxiety, less depression, and more satisfaction, why not? It sounds great. It's, it's, and I think anytime, as you mentioned, in whether it's geriatrics, uh, where someone has cognitive impairment, or if you're a, a pediatrician, you often like when the patient can't advocate for themselves, like in the ICU, you're, you are dealing with mostly with the family. Mm -hmm. So an intervention that helps them, it just makes sense. I, I think it's a great point. Absolutely. I'm trying to remember where I heard of the model of actually even rounding with the family at bedside. So actually talking about the plan and discussing the patient's update and just having the family right there the entire time. So it's not quite so opaque as to what's happening. They're coming in and just kind of seeing this person in one slice of time as opposed to hearing the actual history, which probably does help um, clarify things and alleviate anxiety a little bit too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember in the, um, I've worked in a lot of different healthcare systems and the systems that allowed families to join into the rounds and, you know, respectfully wait till the end but ask questions. The amount of satisfaction they had and feeling like they were actually taking part in the care process was phenomenal. So I would definitely recommend that in institutions that, yeah, that don't do that already. Um, so to add one point, um, in the talk this morning, when they talked about the end of life, what also impacted the um, involvement of the family, what impacted the care is the involvement of the family by having a specific dedicated line that the family members could call in. Mm -hmm. So the rounding attendant at the end of rounds went on to this app and updated or offered a quick update for each patient and any family members that were on the list for that specific patient would mm -hmm. actually call in and have a full update. That way you did not have the back and forth. Yeah. Hey, the nurse calls you and you're like, right. what's going on? Oh, well, I, ha I have the cousin. I have the sister. Right. I have the right. mom. Right. And you keep going back and forth. So if you made it available and they could actually share it mm -hmm. amongst themselves, that really increased the satisfaction and helped in managing better um, the uh, the care and the patients. It's always difficult when when the family's not available, though, and especially during during times that you typically round. Although the times that we typically round are also the times that families are typically not available mm -hmm. because they're working, right? And so um, I, I think something like that would be a game changer. Yeah. You had some other really interesting stuff. Let's let's hear it. Yeah. So you want to get into the um, vitamin C in the ICU one? It's up to you. <laughs> going to set off Stuart, but okay. I know. I'm kind of a little afraid now. Um, so let, 
<laughs> Let's talk about it. Okay, so what I'm talking about is the Citrus ALI study. So um, that's the acute lung injury study where basically um, they randomized 167 patients to get vitamin C um, versus not, and that's uh, 96 hours um, after admission. Um, and basically the endpoints, what they were looking at were changes in inflammatory markers. So that's the CRP as well as changes in the modified SOFR score, um, which is a sepsis scoring system. Um, they had mortality as a secondary endpoint. Um, for their primary endpoints, they had no difference in the inflammatory markers, no changes in CRP, and uh, no changes in modified SOFR scores. However, there was a pretty significant change in a mortality at 28 days. It was 25% compared to 40%, which is huge. Yeah. You know? Um, and everyone was, you know, they threw up the slides and there was literally like a gasp. People were like, <laughs> I thought people were going to stand up and start clapping. <laughs> and then uh, he was like, hold your horses. Let's, let's talk about this. The issue with this is that they had multiple secondary endpoint. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about statistics, I know a tiny little bit. When you're comparing, doing multiple comparisons, the likelihood of finding a significant difference that's due to chance when it's not your primary endpoint increases. So that was the issue. And, uh, you know, the, he had written an editorial on it, the presenter, and he had done his own analysis and he discovered that it was actually a 40% likelihood of getting a difference that's significant, but there was actually due to chance when you're looking at your secondary endpoints. Um, so it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's basically just back to where we were from um, in that yeah. it's not quite ready for prime time, but there is something there. Yeah. And go ahead, Aaron. Oh, but at least it's not steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Can we all be just happy about that? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, I wanted to throw the, this point out there so that if anyone's listening, they could, they, they might actually be able to uh, formulate a study on this. But one of the things that, so Vitamin C is one of those causes for microcytic anemia. And the reason why is because vitamin C reduces ferric to ferrous iron. Ferrous iron is what is incorporated in heme. It's also what's necessary for the hydroxylase reactions to create sympathomimetic neurotransmitters. And the likelihood that ferrous is converted to ferric iron and thus not available is higher in lower pH environments like sepsis and septic shock. And so the IV uh, ascorbic acid actually helps to reduce ferric to ferrous iron and thus allows it to be utilized with for the synthesis of neurotransmitters, sympathomimetic neurotransmitters specifically, that, that which is targeted by like vasopressor agents, right? Vasoactive agents all target the same targets as those sympathomimetic neurotransmitters. And so one of the things I'd love for someone to do is actually do a trial looking at pre and post infusion free iron looking at ferrous free iron because that's what it, that's what our assays check they don't check ferric iron right so you want to check free iron fr uh, pre and post and look for those who respond and those who respond should have more of a vasoactive response to vitamin C and that that response should be more profound in low socioeconomic um backgrounds one of one of the studies that that I have underway right now actually shows that African Americans for example two thirds of women of childbearing age are non anemic but iron deficient profoundly iron deficient in fact same thing with Hispanics um, Caucasians are about fifty percent but the Hispanics and African Americans two thirds and so that needs to be evaluated 
So are you saying we can use IV iron safely in sepsis? No, no, no. I am not saying that. <laughs> so, so and, and you have to... So this has not been studied. It's only been studied in, in, in mice. So as far as IV iron and the impact in sepsis. Um, but one of the, the one of the questions is which iron do bacteria respond to? Because they have ferroreductases. They don't have ferrooxidases. So they actually respond to ferrous, not ferric iron. And so one of the concerns is that if you then convert everything to ferrous iron, are you then going to promote bacterial overgrowth? I bet your heart rate's like 170 right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like biochemistry and translational research is where I live. I live in that gap. Mm -hmm. For the listener at home, Stuart's eyes turned completely black during that entire monologue. (laughs) It was wild. Uh, This is is where I live, guys. Okay. Great. Uh, Sarah, did you want to tell us about the... Um, I just, uh, as a comment about the secondary endpoint and the multiple analyses, did they, I mean, did they try to correct for that? Because statistically, they should have been able to... I mean, there's some controversy about using things like the Bonferroni correction test, mm-hmm. but did they comment on they, that? Yeah, they didn't do it in the study. Did they have so. a rationale for for why they did not correct no, for it? Really? No. Yeah. Okay. Just curious. <laughs> so, curious about the stats. Yeah. So with regards to whether or not it's going to change my practice, you know, for me, it's a little different because, you know, in addition to working in the regular ICI, I'm a burn intensivist. And for burn patients who have crazy fluid shifts, we actually end up using vitamin C quite a bit. So we actually have two relatively, you know, strong indications to use it right now between, you know, trying to not pound them full of fluids and then, you know, potentially helpful in sepsis. So it's definitely not going to be my go-to, but it's definitely something I'll consider if I find I'm, you know, sort of up a creep without a paddle. He's on three pressers. I can't give him any more fluids because his lungs are whited out. Maybe I'll consider giving him vitamin C. So. It, it, it almost seems like the, the pathophysiology would support giving it earlier on before they're on the three pressers. Yes. But yeah, I, yeah it's, and the study demonstrates that, that it's within 98, 90, yeah, 96 hours. Which makes sense based, based on the pathophysiology. Absolutely, absolutely. And can I just put in a two-second aside for all listeners who are not critical care specialists? Normal saline is dead. Yes, 100%. 100%. Can, can we have all a moment of silence for normal saline? <laughs> It has passed from us, and we are grateful to it, but it is now the era of not normal saline. Yeah, we well, are thankful to our surgical colleagues the surgeons for introducing were right. us to LR. Yes, yes. Okay, Nina, the monocyte distribution with I just learned about it about 15, 20 minutes ago. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, or Nina, I'm sorry. Chidinma, Chidinma, yes, Chidinma yes. I'm sorry. So, Chidinma, can you tell us about the monocyte well, distribution with Well, I have you beat by like an hour, okay? Yeah, because okay. I learned about it an hour and 15 minutes ago. It's really exciting stuff, actually, and I'm surprised it didn't make much more of a splash. So what what it is, monocyte distribution width or MDW, um, it's a marker that actually helps separate out sepsis from SIRS. And for those of you just sort of recapping, SIRS stands for systemic inflammatory response syndrome, where you have your huge inflammatory response and it might not necessarily have anything to do with infection. So what it is, it's actually FDA approved right now, is validated in the ER, it's studied in ED patients. And um, because especially with the whole one hour sepsis bundle, it's important now to actually be able to identify our patients who are septic. And what it is, is it pro- produ- produces a readout and um, they basically validated it where when it's above 20, the sensitivity and specificity for sepsis is incredibly high. It's well above 90. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so it's something that will, it's, it's only available in five um, hospitals nationwide right now, but it's, you're going to be seeing it coming out soon. Um, and uh, it basically comes out as a readout as part of the CBC differentiation. So just as you see your RDW, you're going to see an MDW in future. Ah, that sounds great. 
another number to look at on the CBC. Just what I want. <laughs> <Finally. laughs> it was getting too ball. easy, so I'm glad they add another dimension. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, I think, uh, Sarah, some of the research pearls that you had um, kind of, we, we talked, we mentioned CRP, we mentioned procalcitonin a little bit um, on previous. Do you want to, do you want to let us know about that? Okay. So speaking of the results of lab studies um, and interpreting them, I attended a really interesting poster session by Brittany Rosales and Austin Meyer of The Ohio State University. Uh, it was entitled Improving the Diagnostic Utility of Clinical Biomarkers. And so what they did is they looked at um, CRP and procalcitonin concentration. And instead of looking at it as a dichotomous variable with a with a cutoff point, they wanted to explore what would happen if they looked at it as a continuous variable, and whether it would be able to accurately predict the probability of a patient being infected with gram negative or gram positive bacteria. So what they did is they took a data set um, of over 800 people, ultimately 188 had uh, were confirmed bacteremia, and they found that the continuous percent of PCT, uh, specifically for a value range of 0 to 10, was predictive of gram-negative bacterial infection, but not gram-positive. Um, and additionally, they found that PC, and this I think is interesting, that the PCT concentration was not really helpful in this analysis for predicting the gram-positive uh, bacterial infection, as noted, um, but CRP was not strongly predictive of either. So the CRP continuous variable did not positively predict the uh, infection with a gram-positive nor a gram-negative bacteria. So it was the procalcitonin that actually seemed to have some. Can can you remind me what what did they say what the cutoff was that that predicted gram-negative infection? Did they did they give you the value? Uh, they do. They I, they have. Um, graphs that I can ask for permission okay. to share on the show notes, but the uh, the range of values for the procalcitonin that they gave, or that they emphasized anyway, was 0 to 10. So much higher, obviously, than the cutoff, which I believe is 0. 0.5. Is yeah, correct? 0. 0.5 yeah. is a common one that's is a common one that's used. I wanted to ask our esteemed guests, uh, did is are any of you using CRP or procalcitonin in your practice right now? So um, I am. I am. And uh, I say that sort of hesitantly. I see two very different populations. I see general medical intensive care unit patients, and then I see burn ICU patients. And physiologically, these are two vastly different patients. Right. Um, with our burn ICU patients, um, they come in and they have a massive serious response going on. Um, blood pressure's through the roof, or sometimes hypotensive tachycardia, um, you know, it's either profoundly hypothermic or sometimes fever, and, and it has nothing to do with infection most of the time, until it does. Uh -huh. And so the times when it does, you know, we actually draw procalcitonin as part of our order sets because we receive, this, you know, we're a burn center. So the patients are stabilized and transferred from another facility. Often they have lines in that uh -huh. are probably dirty lines. Yeah. Um, and we check our procalcitonin. Um, and if it's high, um, you, when I say high, I say usually around above 10, then we start antibiotics empirically. I see. All right. Um, and this is just more expert practice, you know, anecdotal than anything validated. But we've seen over and over again that in these patients, 
almost like clockwork, 48 hours later, the blood culture is returned positive when um, the procalcitonin is high. In the medical ICU, I'll say it has less utility. Um, sometimes it's uh, elevated and um, there is, you know, especially in renal failure patients, there is no real reason why um, and we don't see infection. Um, and sometimes it's low and there's clearly infection. So um, I'll say there's a little bit less of a utility for it in, the, the, in that population. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Cash Lack Memorial Hospital cannot afford procalcitonin calcitonins. Right. And they take five days to come back. <laughs> yeah. So it, it interesting that um, some places, even when it comes back quickly, um, th- there was this article that we'll be talking about on a future show that was in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. It's one of the medical overuse articles. They do this, they put this at series out once a year and they are recommending not using procalcitonin for, to, to test to t- say if someone has a lower respiratory tract infection because clinician judgment is pretty has been shown to be pretty much equal for how much antibiotics patients end up getting. So the the point was or the point of our guest was that they they don't think this is a test that's adding value. The sensitivity and specificity are around like 75%. So yeah. So with regard to procalcitonin in our ICU, we end up using it as a standard uh, initial test for patients that actually have sepsis or are suspected to have sepsis. Okay. And we tend to use it uh, to initiate antibiotic therapy and stop the antibiotic therapy when the procalcitonin is not high enough. Yeah. The other point I wanted to make is uh, when I did my fellowship, I did cystic fibrosis patients and we actually did a research study <laughs> looking specifically at procalcitonin levels in cystic fibrosis patients to determine a CF exacerbation, pulmonary exacerbation. Right. And uh, I, what was interesting, we actually, I ran the essay during the, um, so we got a grant when the PCT was not really available and we ran the test locally to have it immediately after uh, their admission. And uh, what was interesting is because of the amount of colonization that these patients have in the bronchiectatic world, their PCT level was elevated, not extremely high, but it was not negative. And therefore, we weren't able to actually use it as oh, a determinant factor to the, whether or not they should get PICC line and two weeks of antibiotics or not. So that was really an interesting uh, finding. And as part of the order set, was that protocolized? Because, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of one of the issues was is that even if you gave guidance to physicians using the procalcitonin, they just kind of ignored it anyway. Like, so it was, so if you, if you just kind of have it out there as a number without any specific guidance to go along with it, it just didn't seem to be all that helpful. So when you were using it, was there a specific sort of. Absolutely. So we had to actually fight to get the procalcitonin essay in the lab because you have to add an additional machine to be able to run it and have it back uh, within the hour to be able to determine what to do. So the ICU, uh, um, in the rural community where we are practicing outside of Lansdale and um, Doylestown went from being an open ICU to a closed ICU. So it's effectively working, if you want, using the procalcitonin in a closed ICU because you have one captain of the ship that decides exactly what to do. And there was a protocol, a set protocol that included multi-disciplines, ID, labs, and everybody else, even billing to figure out exactly whether it would be useful or not. And it turned out to be useful and it decreases the use of antibiotics within the ICU. So I think the the population, so what I will recommend to our audience is for your general, if you're a hospitalist, if you're a primary care doc, if you're picking up a patient from the emergency department who's not critically ill, I, I don't think it has a place in your practice. I don't think I've actually right. seen and it in real life. It's like a unicorn to me. Like yeah. I know that, like I've heard them describe, but I've never actually seen it. And, and, and that's what the high temp study was looking at was emergency department admissions and whether or not the procalcitonin helped to guide therapy yeah. or not. So, but there are other studies that look at using it for like, 
antibiotic discontinuation. There's a study from uh, January 2018, which shows that in the procalcitonin group, the uh, rate of superinfection with ventilator-associated pneumonia was 12.5% in procalcitonin group versus 26.9% in standard therapy. Okay. Um, any any more comments before we move on? We have a, a bunch more to, to get to. Yeah, I can just round out the procalcitonin talk. I'll say we we should consider it just as another tool. You know, we all have our clinical acumen and we have a lot of other data points we can look at. The white count, fevers, um, you can actually do, uh, what's it called, peripheral. um, There was a study where they basically used like a little glass to blanch to see peripheral perfusion. And that's actually better than lactate based on that study. So there's a lot of other data points we can use. And I think we can also consider procalcitonin as just one extra piece of information. Don't live or die by it, but just, you know, use it in in, in view of everything else. Yeah. It's like the... uh it's like when you're doing volume status exam, there's no, unfortunately, there's no like one measure. You just have to put the history and multiple other things together to, to make your decision. Exactly. Yep. So Nina, you, you had some interesting stuff that was kind of blowing our mind in the, in the teaching world. So tell us about this. What should we be excited about? All right. So this morning, Dr. Carla Lamb, Viren Cole, and Dr. Subani Chandra actually had a session about technological innovation in medical education. And yes, it definitely blew my mind. So what Dr. Lamb is working on is actually uh, augmented reality. It's a different way to create a virtual classroom for medical students, residents, and fellows. And she had an app that she's developing at this point. It's not available commercially, but she is in the process of finishing and optimizing the app where you are able to use your iPad to recreate virtually the lung based on CAT scan images or just based on the patient being in front of you. And you are able to touch virtually the lung, remove certain segments, localize a nodule as you dive inside the lung virtually. And so when you look at that, the um the possibility are endless. Uh, she is able to create a virtual classroom worldwide where you have 15 students and you're able to interact and take quizzes while actually virtually navigating within the airway. So as you the example that she gave us this morning was in the classroom we were literally driving down the main airway and the question pops where it tells you where I'm, what am I? And if you get it right, you have a wonderful sound. And if you get it wrong, you get another chance or the next students end up getting a chance at doing it and so forth. And, um, so that was absolutely, um, amazing. And, uh, that led to the conversation about what are we doing? How, how effectively are we teaching our medical students, residents and fellows? And are we limiting them by trying to actually show them or teach them only what we know. With the virtual reality, you are sh- giving them the tools to learn limitlessly. <laughs> like, yeah. know what their mind will go based on their vantage points rather than the teacher. Right. And uh, there's there there's a quote, Paul. Do you remember? Who, I think I want to say Uncle Bob said this, but it's like, uh, or he sent an article out on Twitter that said this, but it was like. It's like teaching is something you do to other people. Education is something you do to yourself. Like you can't, as a teacher, you you can't force someone to learn. Like they have to learn on their own. You can sort of inspire them or point them in the right direction, 
but like the it's it's on the learner to really in, internalize and and work with that information. And that's what Dr. Ch- uh, what uh, Dr. Subhani Chandra stated during her talk. She said you have to make it matter. So you can be enthusiastic and try to show them how to do it. Ultimately, she discussed the forgetting curve. They can sit down in the classroom, listen to you, but within 20 minutes, they will retain maybe 10% of the material that you actually presented. And if they forget it and they're exposed to it, and if it's spontaneous on their part to be exposed to it again, chances of them remembering it as time goes on is higher. Yeah. And um, so I feel like that means I should be a wizard at RTAs right now. And I that's not necessarily <laughs> the case. <laughs> Oh, so true. <laughs> so I'm sorry for interrupting. Please. No, you, you mentioned. So tell us about this. Uh, what if you just drop a computer in a village? Tell us. So yes, that, that's been done. The story was really intriguing. So Viren, they were actually discussing a professor in India, in New Delhi, in the at the end of 1990s, beginning of 2000, where you were still. Um, able to find a remote village that had absolutely no technology whatsoever and no internet. And this professor ended up going, finding literally a wall where he um, installed a computer screen with a mouse on the side and connected it to the internet. And he left it there for approximately three months. And then he came back. And of course, to his surprise, what he found out, uh, he found actually multiple kids and children all surrounding the screen and literally not only knowing how to manipulate it and save files and go into different sections, but have learned over 600 words and looked at him and asked him for a better processor and a better mouse. And Mind you, these children had no idea what technology was about. They didn't speak English. They didn't speak English. They're in the middle of a remote village in India. Yeah. So that right there shows us how amazing the human mind is. And if we can adopt the same philosophy in teaching medicine to our medical students, fellows and residents, they're going to end up being better physicians than we are. And as teachers, we ought to encourage better learning uh, techniques and allowing them to be free rather than to be limited in the, in the classroom. Kim, did you have something to add here? Um, just listening to you talk about this is really making me think about the chest conference experience and how much they do to get you into that experience and really embracing that gamification theory. So as a trainee here, or not a pre-trainee, not even a fellow, fellow yet in pulmonology and critical care, um, the games that they have, um, whether, so like, the Dr. Neb um, and the COPD challenge and stuff as opportunities to kind of engage with the material in this low stakes way, but also really taking it on myself um, has been really fun to watch. And they've given a couple of different talks talking about how games uh, help not only with recalling and remembering what you learn, but also in engaging that learner. 
And so it's been really cool just being here and seeing like apps to learn how to do bronchoscopy. And um, as a chief resident, thinking about, oh, how am I going to bring some of these games back to my residents? And to that point also, there are multiple websites and uh, resources to teach virtually. Uh, one of them is Bronchoscopy International by Dr. Henry Colt, where literally you have a full curriculum to be able to virtually learn everything needed from the bronchoscopy standpoint. And that's extremely useful and it's for free. So it's available and he is amazing at reaching um, third world countries that have maybe one bronchoscope in the whole town. It's it's absolutely amazing um, when you actually are able to learn or train the trainer uh, to learn so much about the bronchoscopies or train the trainers to be able to deliver better care. So, so to round us out here, we are going to talk about uh, Nina's favorite topic. Yes. Uh, in the short time I've known her, uh, as, which is lung cancer, and Sarah, this is another another poster you went to. Okay, so yes, I attended a poster session. Um, the first author was Dr. Amy Wolf, and uh, the presenter was the second author, who was a medical student at the University of Miami named Kasha Bornstein. Um, and this poster is looking at something that I think is really important to all of us, um, which is climate change, and specifically the intersection of climate change and its effect or potential relationship to non-smoking-related lung cancer. So this study looked at levels of PM 2.5, and PM 2.5 is fine particulate matter measuring less than 2.5 micrometers. Um, and this is a pollutant that's present uh, in the air, but it has been made more common and uh, more of a hazard to people due to the effects of climate change. And those specific effects, I, I can't really speak on. I'm not super familiar with them. It has to do with like air, co air columns and uh, other, other kind of... Um, climates and environmental science, things that I'm not super familiar with. But the end, the, uh, the end result is that PM 2.5, this pollutant is now um, something that people are being more exposed to. They're inhaling this pollutant. So we know that other than smoking, environmental exposure is the main cause of lung cancer. And what they looked at was the correlation between PM 2.5 levels and the age-adjusted incidence of non-smoking-related lung cancer, as well as age-adjusted lung cancer mortality. And what they found was that, um, you know, as, as I think we can probably expect, that as the levels of this particulate matter increased, um, it tracked uh, moderately with the increase in lung cancer incidence and mortality. Um, the R-squared values were 0.27 for incidence and 0.31 for mortality. Um, of course, there are limitations with a correlation study, which Kasha and I were discussing, um, and Kasha recommends designing a study that compares non-smoking-related lung cancer incidence and mortality in areas with and without high levels of PM 2.5 to see if we can get a more kind of robust understanding of what's happening in that relationship. Um, but I, I wanted to include this in our, our recap episode because I think it raises really great points about physicians' you know, duty to engage with topics that affect their patients' health and their own health, ultimately. Um, so I thought that was a, a really interesting take on this issue. Yeah, the, the whole, I, I mean, small particle stuff. I, I worry I worry about it working in the city and uh, living near highways. It, it's it's something, how, how worried should I be, Nina? Am I going to get lung cancer? I never no. smoked. 
Well, as I stated yesterday, uh, out of the uh, more than 400, 400 lung cancer that I've diagnosed, 20%, 22.6% are related more than likely to something that's probably pollution because most of them were non-smokers. And um, you can see and you can notice that your breathing capacity, your cough, your dry cough is um, a symptom that's increasing in the middle, in the inner city environment. And as I stated earlier, um, I've noted when I worked in the city that many people were having problems uh, with ILDs or IPFs or even sarcoidosis type diagnoses uh, with high lymphadenopathies that are actually not related to anything familiar or genetic, but or not even environmental from their daily uh, jobs such as masonry or anything else like that, but are just living into the city. Um, the ILD literature supports this too, because there's that wonderful study from South Korea where they measured air pollution over a year's time and they uh, correlated it to acute exacerbations of IPF. And they were able to control for a lot of other factors in that study. So it's very interesting to think that, you know, it doesn't matter what the injury is to your lung, even if it's just air pollution, it's enough for a lot of patients to have an exacerbation. Absolutely. And actually, to that point, I see a pretty significant Indian population around Lansdale. And many of them that have lived in a highly polluted city earlier in life come back with diffuse ILD type uh, diagnosis. And when we end up biopsying them using the Invisia, actually, they end up coming up with UIP or just an NSIP or any of the other ILDs. So there is clearly in the population that I see right. a correlation between and not recent exposure. You mean they had been as a, as a child, child. They were in India. There was a city with high, high pollutants and then they... And they come in and they develop it and their CAT scans eventually show it because they've never had CAT scans prior. Alveolar epithelial injury and dysregulated repair. It doesn't matter what the injury is. Was... Who was that study sponsored by? Was it sponsored by anybody or... Sarah, do you happen to know? Uh, my understanding of speaking with Kasha was just that this was an analysis that they wanted to do, that they were interested in, and it was publicly available data, I believe. Sure. Um, I can confirm that with Kasha um, since I... You smell big farmer yes. here? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't no. think I, that this I, was... So, so, I was so, so I was looking up what the... Um, what, so the, the in-home air filters, what they are rated against, the size of particulate matter, and they are rated against three microns. So anything less than three microns hasn't, they don't test them, test those air filters for. So it's difficult to know whether or not they have been tested or not. So my concern, and this, I'm sure it's not the study, but let's say that some company has tested it and now they're trying to get the FDA or CDC or whatever to say, aha, our filter stops one micron, right? And so the next thing is you're going to have another company say, let's test 0.5 microns. How dare I you mean... accuse Sarah's new friend? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, I, well, like being after some air filter fortune. It, it, it just seems it, it just seems very conspicuous that it's right below the cutoff of what's currently validated. I am not sure um, about that. I can't speak that Why I'm not an air filter not manufacturer. Conspicuous <laughs> um, is not the word. But micron is as long as you're exposed to pollution. Right, right, right. right. I mean, you're going to be at risk. Period. I, oh, wow. I, I'm happy to include so some information. I, the show maybe notes you should about move outside of. The I, I think we should. I think we should end with this fantastic. <laughs> question by Stuart. <laughs> leave people with this conspiracy theory. Well, it, it just, and, and the other thing too is that it seems like the smaller micron partic- particles are are fairly well, so they're, they're, they're more regulated than the larger 
particulate matter. So like when you look at exhaust uh, regulation and stuff like that, so it's the smaller particulate matter that's not as well regulated. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, there. I'd like to... What it's like to be inside that head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's all move to Scotland. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> I, I've, known, I've known him seven years, and he tells me he thinks differently than other people. And I can tell you that has consistently proven to be true. I know Paul now knows this too. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you to our wonderful guests, uh, our new great friends. Uh, thank you so much. This was, this was awesome. Again. Can I, can I give the one pearl that I learned? Uh yeah sure yeah so in night in 1720s beaver Kill pelts my, were <laughs> I can't <laughs> okay Fine. I'm gonna stop recording This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That is correct, Paul, because we are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we still need your... We still need you to rate, review, and subscribe to us on wherever you get your podcast from. Yeah, I, be- I believe Apple Podcasts these days. It's iTunes is kind of phased, okay. phasing out yeah. now. Well, and, and you can contact us at at thecurbsiders at gmail Okay. Special thanks to our producer for this entire week, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, and to our social media team, Hannah R Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chu Manchu, who is still on ye old archaic Facebook. <laughs> Until next time. I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And uh, Stuart, I'd like to thank you for producing our wonderful theme music. I'd like to once again thank our amazing guests who were so uh, generous to donate their time and expertise. Uh, this has, I am Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. This, I don't know what I was, I don't know what I was going to say there, Paul. <laughs> I but uh, I am, is Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. <laughs> this, this is Dr. Matthew so Frank Watto, about, apparently about to uh, go into full-blown delirium. He <laughs> <laughs> needs some vitamin C. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, whoops! Sorry. I'm gonna make a joke about expanding the um, ICU hours when you go into your delirium. So, uh, which will make sense once people listen to this. Um, I have been and hopefully always will be Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Well played. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Oh, hi, Paul. <laughs> <laughs>